Father, we do indeed call upon you knowing that you are the same God. Father, we, we've been privileged to walk through your word and to see how the things that you left your church to do today that you gave through your son Jesus were the same things you were calling Israel to do, Father, that what you have desired of us has not changed. Who you are has not changed. God, it has been an honor to each week see a little bit more of who you are, who you desire us to be, Father, who you made us to be. And so as we come to you again this morning, Father, we, we are aware of your grace. We are aware of your mercy. Father, as we wrestle with the reality of who we are apart from you, as Exodus 32 is going to lead us in doing, um, God, we, we praise you for who you are this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Church, I'm going to do things a little bit out of order this morning and dive right into Exodus 32 because uh, this is a story many of you may be familiar with. Uh, and I, I'd wrestled with where to kind of pull this piece out for Exodus because there's been something big that's been going on throughout the book. Uh, but this morning feels fairly appropriate. So we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, the story of the golden calf. And, and really, this is going to take about three weeks to get through because it kind of spills over into the subsequent chapters. But church, I, I'm going to read it and then we're going to talk about something big underlying that's been carrying through the book that really, really helps us understand why this, why this story is recorded, why this is such a big deal for us. So beginning in Exodus chapter 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Okay, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the lay that I have commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, well, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. And relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. 
and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Uh, Personally, this is my favorite line in the whole story. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. We... You recall a couple verses earlier. It says Aaron took a tool and made it. But now here's Aaron going, I just threw it in the fire. I don't know how this got here. Verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. And go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord... Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with this story, uh, but there's some very difficult things to wrestle with in here this morning. And, and to help us kind of process what all is taking place, church, I, wanted, I want to give you a quick little insight into what a Hebrew wedding ceremony would have looked like. And I promise it will make sense why, but chapter 32 in Exodus really only makes sense if you understand what an ancient Hebrew wedding looked like, which I did not understand until I was reading through some commentaries preparing uh, to teach and to read through this this morning. I was like, how is, how is this important? 
But the little bit of background, in a traditional Hebrew wedding, it would have started where all the town's people gathered together, they would have this big festival, and at some point in the festival, all the eligible women would have gone out to dance. And all the eligible men would have taken notice of all these eligible ladies dancing. They would have kind of noted which one stood out to them. And then after the dance was over, the men would have gone to the ladies and found out, okay, uh, so where are you from? You know, they would have gotten to know one another a little bit. And then at the end of the festival, when everybody kind of went back to their homes, back to their other towns, the, the, the man would go back and get his father, and they would go travel to whatever town that the, the girl who had caught his eye was from. And they would sit down with her and her parents and him and his father. And they would they'd hammer out what a covenant of marriage between not just the two people, but between the two families. What would it look like? Right? So, so the, the woman and the man and their parents would be kind of putting this together. At the end of it, then the woman would be given the opportunity to say, uh, okay, yes. I will enter into this covenant with you. Or she would say, no, this is not something I want to do at all. And then that was it. You know, the the guy would say, okay, he would leave and go home. But if she said yes, then the man and his father would go back to the, the father's house. And the man would spend, and this is kind of where the indefinite piece comes in. He was to build a room off of his father's house. I mean, it essentially You could think of it today like building a house on the family land. But he would build a house at the direction of his father. And only the father's approval would tell the young man when he could be done. You know, he he may build one room and the father may come in and look at it and say, now son, did you you think about a bathroom? You go back and put in a bathroom. And then the son would have to do that. And then the father would come and say, okay, son, I see this. Did you put GFCI outlets in the kitchen? And he'd have to say no and Go back and do that. So, so the father would go back and forth with the son. The son had to keep working on the house until the father said, it is sufficient for you and your bride. You have my stamp of approval. And at that point, the son would get everybody together, all his friends, all his family. They would all pack up and they would travel to the town where the bride was. This whole time, the bride has no clue when, the, when the, her groom maybe coming back to get her, but she knows he's getting ready, so she spends her time also getting ready. Her and her family are putting wedding preparations together. They're they're, they're getting the dress. They're getting the fitting. They're taking care of all the business on her side, waiting for the groom to come back, and they've got somebody kind of sitting at the town gate waiting to see when the groom's family is going to come up over the hill so that as soon as they see him coming, they could turn back and say, hey, All this stuff we've been preparing for, like, this is not a drill. This is taking place right now. And the whole ceremony would begin as soon as the groom and his family would enter. Everybody would get to know one another. And the ceremony itself would take place for about a full week. Right? So we think think weddings are stressful for, you know, taking place on half of a day. This is a ceremony that would take place the entire week. You can imagine the preparations the bride's family would have to go through to have a celebration for they don't even know how many people. But it's going to be for most likely the entire town and all this guy's family. And on, on the first night of the wedding ceremony, the, the bride and the groom would get to have their evening together. And then the rest of the ceremony would just continue throughout the week. At the end, at the end of the week, and I, I, it's a nice idea. 
Uh, most of you are going to think that would not work in our world today. But the bride and the groom would go back home, and for a full year, they would just get to live together. The, the groom did not have to go to work. He was not eligible for military service. The bride was not expected to have to like keep the house up or you know, for her to have to go into the village for whatever. Just the two of them got to get to know one another because as you can hear it, they didn't know each other that much ahead of time. They got an entire year of getting ready together. Why we have to understand that in order to understand Exodus 32 is because there's this, God has been following this pattern, if you will, when he's working with Israel. If you remember back when God came to Abram, before he was even Abraham, when he came to Abram the first time in Genesis, he's, he said something to the effect of, I've noticed you in your family from amongst all the other peoples of the world. I want you to know I'm going to set you apart as mine. That's kind of like the husband-to-be at the festival watching all the people, all the women, and he says, that one right there, she, she, she is going to be the one that I will marry. God comes and he chooses Abraham and his family. And then you see throughout Genesis and into the beginning of Exodus, God has been working with Abraham, working with Isaac, working with Jacob, kind of each little bit at, towards the back of Genesis, which... Some of us are not as familiar with because it bleeds into Exodus. is also a story we don't tend to go through in the Old Testament. But God, with each patriarch of the family, keeps showing them this is what the covenant looks like, right? He's gone to the bride-to-be's home. He sits down with the family. They're hammering out what the covenant looks like. God then leaves his people. That's how they end up in Egypt for 430 years. And at this point in, in our understanding of a Hebrew wedding, that's basically God kind of getting the house ready. Some of you guys have probably even heard uh, verses from the New Testament talking about Jesus going to prepare a place in his father's house. Same imagery, same thing going on. Then God comes back to kick off the wedding party. He delivers his people out of Egypt, and then he kind of reminds them of the covenant. Like, hey, I'm back. Here's everything we agreed to. Are you still in? Which is exactly what the groom would have done when he came back with his bride. That's been the last like 16 chapters, right? Of all these tabernacle blueprints. And here's what the priests are going to wear. They're going over the covenant saying, okay, remember, this is everything agreed to. Are you in? By the time we get to Exodus 32, Right? Where, where did we leave off last week, church? Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses, when he'd finished speaking with him, the two tablets of the testimony. We have finished the covenant. I'm ready to celebrate. Exodus 32 should be the most intimate part of the wedding story, if we're following the line. God is here. His people are here. They're ready to have a wedding. They're ready to spend their first night together. And as God is with Moses, the people ask Aaron to make them an idol. They ask, they ask him to make them something else that they can worship, something else that they can be with. In, the, in a, analogy, a more modern analogy, you would say it's basically the groom finding his bride-to-be with someone else like hours before the wedding ceremony is about to take place. And it's, 
it's this very unsettling story right in the middle or towards the right in the middle of the back half of all this covenant language, right? God teaching his people, this is how I want you to be. This is who you are to me. This is who I am. We've got like, you know, they're, they're like learning and growing and moving together. This is awesome. And then right in the middle of this, Israel goes off and, and says, I, I want something else. Church, the, the story of the golden calf today and each of the next two Sundays as we kind of walk through the subsequent chapters, it's, it's going to teach us a lot about what sin has done to us. But in, in light of who God is, in light of who he's called us to be, we live in a reality of where we currently are because of the brokenness that you and I wrestle with. Right now, now this might not be our true identity if we are in Christ, right? That thank God we are not bound by sin anymore. But for those who, who have not placed faith in Christ or for those of us who still wrestle in the flesh, this, this is a, a picture, a snapshot of what sin has done to you and me. God has been telling us this is who you are. We are kind of confronted, deeply unsettling with this imagery of but this is what we tend to do. This is, this is the direction we have chosen instead. And yet, church, in the midst of this wedding ceremony gone horribly wrong, we're also going to learn a lot about who God is. And we're going to learn a lot about who his Messiah figure is too. So we're going to keep these pieces in mind that this is a, a, a wedding ceremony gone terribly wrong. But guys, the three things we're going to kind of start with today, and then we'll build on that for each of the next two weeks. What do we learn about us from Exodus 32? First, uh, we, our sinful default is an unfaithful bride-to-be. This is the picture that we see in ourselves in Exodus 32. And, and it, if, if sin has broken us away from God, and it's changed the way that we relate to him, changed the way we bear his image, what does that change look like? We're, we're clued in a couple things in this chapter. We see from verse 1 that we are an impatient people. Aaron and the people have only been apart from Moses for about 40 days. And, and this entire time, commentators will say, well, the cloud was still on the mountain. They, they didn't know when Moses was coming back, but they could still see Moses was, was with God. God's presence was still on the mountain 40 days, and yet immediately, I mean, just listen to what they say. Make us gods who shall go before us. So they've totally given up on God at this point. They say, as for, as for this Moses, and they call Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So not only is God no longer the one who brought him out of Egypt, Moses somehow did this apart from God. He, they then turn around and say, we, we don't even know what's become of him, right? God's out of the picture. Moses is out of the picture. After 40 days, they have seen God deliver him out of Egypt. They've seen him provide time and time and time again. And after 40 days, they are throwing the whole thing away. We are an impatient people. Church, sin affects our view of timing. That rather than being patient to join in God's reconciliation journey, we, we grow impatient when things don't happen on the timing we believe it to. And, and to be honest, one of the biggest things that I struggle with in growing in faith is what Moses and the, or what the people are walking through here, which is like, I like to call it, it's indefinite timing. 
God says, I'm going to do a work in you. I'm going to bring something to fruition. And then there is zero timeline given. You can imagine all of my engineering classes in tech, we worked on timelines, right? Like we learned how to estimate how long things should or shouldn't take. Like we even learned how to factor in the productivity of the average worker, right? That for every hour it should take to do something. In our equations, we said, well, it, it really, they're only going to work for about 45 minutes of every hour. A, a, a really productive worker is only going to work about 45 minutes for every hour. Like we learned timeline, schedules, this, then this, then this. The notion that God could give us a promise and then not tell us exactly when he's going to come back and do it, it it's unsettling. And maybe, maybe it's not as much for you. It's very difficult for me. And I've, I learn, and when I see this, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I am. I am an impatient person. It is no stretch of imagination for me to say yes. Sin has weakened my ability to be patient. We also see from this, we desire a, or, or maybe we settle for, a, a more physical, tangible expression of God than necessarily the real deal. They, they say, make us gods who shall go before us. Look, look, Aaron, all the other nations, they have their idols. When they talk about their God, they can point to a physical, you know, be it a statue, be it a shrine, something. They can point to something and say, that's our God. And we're out here, Aaron, we're trying to you know, tell people about God, but they have no clue. They, they don't know who our God is. Build us something that will be our God. The harm with this you see, they're pursuing this, this sense of physical power on earth. We're not like the rest of the nations, Aaron. We need something to point to. Give us something to point to that will go before us. We see then desiring this tangible thing. They're saying, well, if, if our God's not in the picture, then who do we attribute this whole work of deliverance to? So they put it on Moses. And then they say, well, Moses is also not gone. We need, we need something physical to take on, to represent the work that God has done. And in doing so, they start to attribute the work of God to man. And then when they say when Moses is gone, they say, hey, now, now we need somebody else to take Moses' place. Then they also, and this is kind of the, the big one for me, they take what was set apart for God and they use it for themselves. Remember, they were in slavery for Egypt. They did not have a lot of jewelry with them. When they left, they plundered Egypt. And if you guys remember, when we were going through all the tabernacle blueprints, all the stuff that they took out of Egypt, God says, use this to build my new temple, to build, my, you know, build the, the tabernacle, to build the altars. Use all the jewelry that you took. And now here Aaron says, well, take your jewelry, this stuff that should have been made for the temple, and Aaron says, well, just give it to me. I'll, I'll take care of it for you. That's uncomfortable this morning for me, church. When we see what else our sinful default has done, we're impatient. We tend to kind of overemphasize physical, tangible. I mean, that's exactly what John preached on two weeks ago. We, we kind of put the body ahead of the soul and of the spirit. But we see that really what this does is it throws off our worship. We lose sight of what we worship. Because as soon as they see this calf, they say, oh, this is it. These are our gods. And then Aaron, when he hears the people declare this, he builds an altar to it. He, he literally says, well, okay, 
It's not like a, if you can't beat him, join him. He seems to encourage this. He builds an altar. He leads them to make sacrifices. And the result of this in verse 6, they sit down to eat and drink, and then it says they rose up to play. The Hebrew there implies a lot of immoral stuff was going on. But I, I think the, the, bigger, the bigger deal than just the fact that Israel was doing some immoral stuff, it, it tells me that Israel was really comfortable. They offered their sacrifices. They felt like they had done everything they needed to do to be right with God because they did what God had said to these idols. So they went away and their conscience was clean, right? They, they have no, there's no wrestling within them. They feel as if they are truly right with God, not even recognizing they built God themselves. They, they have made a God to serve them. So we, this is how, in a lot of ways, our sin has broken us apart from God. I mean, you should be hearing the same narrative all throughout this book come up, church. It's led Israel to leave the covenant with God because they're enamored with a God who promises power, right? Someone who will go before them, who they can point to in a moment of trouble and say, that's our God. A God who promises production, right? Moses is taking forever. We need something now. And ultimately, a God who promises self. Yeah, sure, you're, you feel like you've done everything you need to do? You're right with me. Time and time again, church, we are hearing this narrative. This narrative keeps coming up into the people of God. And God keeps saying, that is not me. That's not me. So this is, is a... It's an unfortunate, but it is a reality. This is who we are apart from God. This is what sin has done. This, I, as I'm reading this, I'm hearing this, this stands very differently than all the other things we've been talking about, and it should. Because as what we've been talking about through all the tabernacle, all the blueprints, this is God saying, this is who I want you to be. Exodus 32, we get this kind of jarring reality. But this is what sin has done. This is what sin has done. And we are grateful, at least I'm grateful this morning, that that's not the end. Because we also learn in this chapter something about who our God is. And I, I want to, I, in my notes I have written to point out, our God is a gracious God. That would be point two this morning. He's a gracious God. And it's, it is weird to say that point and then dive into the text because you don't necessarily see it. Right away, because this is what we're told about God in, this, in these verses. We see in 7 and 8, God knows exactly what's going on with his people. Moses has no clue, but God says, hey, you should take a look at what your people are doing. And he, he kind of pulls out this adulterous language. They've broken the covenant they made with me. Guys, this is so common in the Old Testament. The prophet Hosea takes... Uh, an unfaithful wife that God says, that's going to mirror me taking you, Israel, to be mine. Uh, in Jeremiah, he uses this refrain over and over and over again, faithless Israel and unfaithful Judah. It's not a flattering expression you'd want to use to describe someone, especially someone that you would be married to, faithless, unfaithful. And it stands in stark contrast to who God shows himself to be. In verse 9, God even calls his people stiff-necked. Um, there's just some wonderful Hebrew expressions that, 
translate to English, you're like stiff-necked. He's, in their world, the animal that they would associate with having a stiff neck would be a donkey. Um, I'm not going to go any further into that. You can make some loops as to how God feels about what his people are doing. He's, he's calling them stubborn, um, rebellious, uh, wants to do what they want to do. And, and, like God is, is rightfully, justifiably angry with the sin of his people. In fact, he even says in verse 10, Moses, I need you to leave me for a second because I'm going to go down there and take care of some business. And the business that God says he's going to do, verse 33, he's going to punish the rebellion by blotting out the names of those who have sinned against him from his book. Book here kind of being a reference to covenant, right? You've heard him use the language in Exodus of cutting him off from his people. It's the same type of scenario here, cutting us off from life with him. He's going to withdraw his presence in verse 34, which we've said if he alone is life, whenever God's presence departs, that leaves us with without life being death. Verse 34 also, he's going to visit their sin upon them. The Hebrew verb for visit here means padach, which carries with it the connotation of I'm coming to judge, right? This is not a friendly visit. This is not your pastor showing up at your house to hang out with you. This is God coming up saying, I, I know and I've seen what you've done. Are you ready to reconcile this with me? And he even sends a plague on them in verse 36 because they made the calf, I mean, which is to me is amazing. Because at this point, the only other time we've seen God send plagues on people is typically people outside of the kingdom of Israel to show that they're worshiping something false. And now God does the same thing for his people because he says, you at this moment are no different than Egypt. Israel, even though you were part of my covenant, even though I chose you, even though you're supposed to bear my image, you are worshiping the exact same thing as the rest of the world. And so I'm going to allow the exact same thing to happen to you. Don't just think I'll spare you because I chose you. If you fall into the trap of worshiping something else, uh, you're going to receive in part their faith as well. But church, in light of all of this, how can we say that our God is a gracious God? If you look down at verse 14, we'll get to Moses in a second. After God tells all of this to Moses, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, I did speak it a little out of order. He did still bring the plague. Because he was teaching them the same lesson he taught Egypt. That, that came from verse 36. But in verse 14, God had something a lot worse. He was going to wipe them out. Similar to, you could say, Noah. When God says, I'm going to wipe all of... These people have no clue who I am. They don't want me anymore. Noah, we're starting a clean slate. Of course, you know, in, in that story, God promised to never do that again. So he's giving Moses an opportunity when he says, Moses, I, I'm going to do this. But he relents. Church, I don't know about you, and, and I'm, I'm grateful uh, that Abigail and I did not have this experience. I, I cannot imagine, and, and some of you may, some of you might know, I cannot imagine you're about to be married to somebody and hours before the ceremony walking in and finding this is not at all what it was promised to be. I can understand God's 
God's anger. I mean, sometimes we have a hard time as Christians talking about why would God be a wrathful God when he loves us so much. I, I hope this morning we're seeing, I can understand why God would have every right to be mad at me. If, if this is truly what my sin is to him, if this is how he, he, he chose an entire nation of people to be his, and this is how they have treated him, and then I, I realize my sin is no different, I, I can, it's not hard for me to understand why God would be described at times as a wrathful God as a God of anger, really as a God of jealousy, because his bride is with someone else. And just as we talked about last week with the Sabbath, where the Sabbath taught us God knows when to say enough, church, what we see is God is not consumed by his anger. He's not consumed by his jealousy. In fact, in verse 10, he tells Moses, I am going to consume them. In verse 14, he says, no, I will not consume them. That God, capable of feeling all of this about his people, and, and rightfully, justifiably so, is still able to be gracious We get to celebrate two baptisms today. And, I mean, a core piece of, of that is us talking about our faith, putting our faith in Jesus because of the grace that God has been shown to us. Church, this, this is a picture of the grace that God has been shown to us. We see it in Jesus Christ and his suffering and his death on the cross. We also see it in places like this where God says, this is what your sin has done. And yet here is who I'm going to be. And the, the key piece in between those church verses 11 through 13 is what does Moses do? We're going to also see Moses doesn't do everything quite right. Okay, We're, And I, I want us to wrestle with that. But what Moses does is key, church. We learn that we, our sin, leads us to be an unfaithful bride. Our God is a gracious God. The last piece with our Messiah, our Messiah is the representer and the interceder. He is the one who is faithful to go before us on behalf of God. Notice what Moses does in verse 11. First, he implores. The Hebrew says he goes to God and he begs. He says, remember, you heard your people crying out in the wilderness and you saved them, verse 11. He says, remember, God, if you do this, if you do consume them like you say you are, you're going to show the rest of the world that you're just a God who, is, who wants things a certain way. And when people can't match that, he's going to be angry and get rid of them and then go look for somebody else who can. This narrative of power production self, right? I have the power to wipe out those who can't produce to please me. Moses says, God, please don't, don't let any of the world be able to look at you and think that that's who you are. Not, not that God would fall prey to this, but Moses, God is giving Moses a chance to say, God, I recognize this about you. I know that's not who you are. Please don't do this. If you do this, the world is not going to truly know you. And he asks God, remember your covenant, which I think just the, the boldness of Moses to stand there before God and say, God, I know you, 
you basically just closed the door after having walked in on your, your bride-to-be, but please forgive them. Like, in, in the moment, as God is wrestling through all these emotions that you and I would also wrestle through, Moses is still saying, God, please forgive them, which is amazing to me, and even more amazing to me in verse 14. That's exactly what God does. Amazing. That God had, Moses at this moment is truly showing us what does it look like to represent and to intercede. We are getting a picture, church, of what Jesus has done for us. Now there is a flip side to this. Moses, we also see his humanity in this chapter. And I want to close with this piece because I think this is where you and I can also relate. There's two really odd stories kind of within this. Verses 15 through 20, you see Moses takes the the tablets, he breaks them, and then he takes the calf and he burns it. He makes it a powder. He mixes it in the water, makes the people drink it. Okay, very odd. The next odd bit about this, verses 21 through 29, Moses kind of calls out his brother for being a lazy priest. He gets all the Levites, which are Aaron's descendants, the ones who are going to be the priestly tribe, and he makes them go kill 3,000 Israelites. Now, I, I, I'm not trying to skip over this. I'll let you know this is a big... Scholars are not quite sure what's going on here. Moses tells us in, uh, in one of the verses here, in verse 27, he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel... He basically says, God has told me to go do this. But you have to weigh that against the fact that in verse 14, God, says, God tells Moses, I've relented from the disaster. And in verse 15, Moses goes down the mountain. So he's leaving God's presence. We don't hear or see from God again until verse 30. There's enough there to make me wonder, is Moses really carrying out something God told him to do? Or is Moses wrestling with the exact same thing that Israel did earlier in the chapter, which is they took matters into their own hands? Church scholars go back and forth on this. My honest opinion, I believe Moses is taking matters into his own hands with this. Because in verse 30, here's here's where we see God kind of re-enter the picture. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he goes back to the Lord in verse 31. He says, Look, God, I know these people have sinned. They made for themselves gods of gold. Please forgive them. And if not, take me in their place. Blot my name out instead of theirs. Almost as if God is saying, Moses, I did not tell you to go make him drink this powder. I did not tell you to go kill a bunch of your brothers and sisters because of their sin. But Moses, now that you have come back to me, now that you have the same heart that I'm looking for in my people, now I can work with you again. Because it is only when Moses comes back to offering himself in the place of the people that we start to see God speak again. When I read this church, I believe this is the same kind of language that God has used throughout the book. What he is looking for in his people, those who will covenant with him to bring his world under his design, to partner with him in the work 
of reconciliation that he's ongoing. This is exactly what John touched on two weeks ago, that when God made us, he said, take dominion over creation, dominion in body, soul, and spirit. And Exodus 32 is this moment where God has been calling his people to the same thing over and over and over again, and then it really goes wrong. And God comes back in at the end of the story and says, now that Moses, you're starting to get it, right? You did not get it when you went out and take did all this other stuff. And God is even gracious. Uh, there's, there's something else Moses will do later that will disqualify him from getting to see the promised land. It's not this. God is even gracious to forgive Moses in this moment. But God, I, I am amazed. I, I am amazed at the grace that he has at the consistent that he's, consistency that he has to keep saying, this is who I am, this is who I want you to be. And even when we do horribly, horribly wrong things, that he still works to draw us back. Church, in the middle, in the middle of all this covenant stuff, this is so much more than just a story about worshiping idols. Church, this is a picture of the gospel, which is what we get to celebrate today with our baptisms. And as, as we are confronted with the gospel this morning, I, I think there are two big questions going forward that we, we get to wrestle with. And I think first we need to wrestle with the question, where are we tempted to take matters into our own hands when it comes to our faith? All right, this kind of goes back to this, this intersection between work and dependence on the spirit that John introduced two weeks ago in his his sermon, we see Israel's tired of waiting on God. Aaron's tired of waiting on Moses. Moses gets down the mountain and he's so frustrated, he just acts out of the first thing that pops into his head. I can't believe this covenant. These people are ridiculous. You guys are going to have to drink your own mess. And in all of this, it never actually solves anything, right? Even as Moses makes the people drink the powder of the calf, he's still not satisfied. So he rounds up the Levites. They go kill 3,000 Israelites, still taking justice into his hands. And even at that point, Moses is still not satisfied. It is not until Moses goes back and says, okay, Israel, you've sinned, but I'm going to go back to God. I'm going to see if we can't work something out. It's when he goes back and he puts himself in Israel's place that God responds. So church, where are we tired of waiting on God? Where are we starting to... Maybe it's not even where we're, we're actively doing it. Maybe, like, where, where do we wrestle with taking matters into our own hands? God, I've prayed about this. For so long, I'm just not seeing what I want to see. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go make it happen, right? And God is gracious. He has gifted all of you in this room today. We we're capable of, of a lot because of what God has given us. We can go do a lot of things successfully without God. Successful on, you know, perhaps our terms, not his. But when Moses goes back to God and says, you know what, okay, what I really need to do is I need to put myself in the place of Israel and before you. 
church, for us to be able to say maybe, maybe what God is calling us to do in this representing and interceding work, it doesn't have as many benchmarks as we would like. It doesn't maybe have a timeline as much as we would like. But if that really is truly God working things out within us, we should be aware of where we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. So just we'll, we'll take a moment in prayer in a second to wrestle with that. The second thing I want to encourage you guys, where is God working out his reconciliation in your life right now? Because God, even in the midst of this train wreck, he's still doing the same work he's always been about. And he still is doing the same work for you and for me today. Okay, maybe God is trying to, to show you something about yourself right now. You know, maybe he keeps putting you in situations. He's done this to me at times, so I'm, if it sounds like I'm being specific, it's because we've, I've been there. Where he just kind of keeps putting you in you know, little moments of things where you kind of constantly get frustrated by, and you keep saying, God, why do you keep putting me in these moments? He's like, because I want you to learn to not be frustrated the next time you're in this moment. Just, just things like that. Where is God trying to reveal to you something about yourself that he's, he's like, hey, when you realize this, now I can refine this, bring this back into my image. Maybe God has you working alongside people you're not used to working with or he's kind of changing seasons where you used to work here, now you're working somewhere else. Maybe you're working with people that you have a hard time getting along with. Just where is he trying to work out reconciliation? Not necessarily something within you, but between you and other people. Maybe God has put someone in your life who isn't right with God, right? We get to celebrate two of our church family coming to know the Lord, which is amazing. Maybe God has been putting other people in your path that aren't right with God and saying, hey, I want you to work towards leading them to be right with God. Where is God working out his reconciliation in your life right now? And just as John touched on when we're thinking about what do we do with our faith as far as it's an active work, but we're dependent on the Holy Spirit. Just as John was saying, where you start is we start by where is God currently at work? So church, this uh, we're going to take a, a, a second. I'll just give you guys maybe 30 seconds, a minute to pray quietly. Where are we tempted to take matters into our own hands? And where do we feel like God is actually trying to work? Okay. We'll give you about 30 seconds. We'll just do some music in the background. And then, then I'll close in prayer. The worship team will come up and we'll end. Matt can start us. Father, as we take a moment to come before you in prayer together, Father, may you show us where you are at work that we might be missing it. And Father, may you show us where you are not at work and yet we are trying to put too much time and effort there. Guide us as we take a moment this morning.
Holy Spirit, as the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may my heart be full of thee. Vain are all divine purposes of love, and vain is the redemption brought by Jesus, except your work within, regenerating by thy power, giving me eyes to see Jesus, showing me the realities of the unforeseen world. Give me thyself without measure, as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches. I bewail my coldness, my poverty, my emptiness, my imperfect vision, my languid service, my prayerless prayers, my praiseless praises. Suffer me not to grieve or resist thee. God, come as power to expel every rebel lust, to reign supreme and keep me thine. Come as teacher, leading me into all truth, filling me with all understanding. Come as love, that I may adore the Father and love him as my all. Come as joy, to dwell in me, to move in me, to animate me. Come as light, illuminating the scripture, molding me in its laws. Come as sanctifier, body, soul, and spirit, holy thine. Come as helper, with strength to bless and to keep directing my every step. Come as beautifier, bringing order out of confusion, bringing loveliness out of chaos. Magnify me to me, thy glory, by being magnified in me, and help me to remember your presence always.